0: or your iPhones to Luke chapter 10. This is our second installment on a series that we started last Sunday called The Controversial Christ. Essentially, we're looking at um, some of Jesus' teachings, his parables, even some of the things that Jesus did that are somewhat controversial, somewhat uh, make us cringe and be like, oh, did he really say that? Did he really just do that? We're kind of looking at those things in a kind of a commitment to not just Love just a certain part or aspect of Christ, but to love Christ as he is, as he is seen, as he is portrayed and taught in scriptures. And so that's the goal of our series, The Controversial Christ. And um, this morning I want to briefly just go over about 13 verses of a story called The Good Samaritan. How many here today are familiar With this parable, the Good Samaritan. Hopefully, all of us are. Um, It's rather a popular uh, parable in that many people have taught about it. Even our world has hijacked it, meaning the secular world has hijacked it. Um, and, and, And I say hijacked because we often get, I think, the interpretation of this parable wrong. Um, and we make it more into kind of like this good deed that a Samaritan did for a Jew. And that's good. It's not bad that we see it as that. But when Jesus said or gave this parable, we need to understand that it it had far much more meaning than just someone doing a good deed. And I want to get into that a little bit this morning because it is somewhat controversial and applicable for us today. So starting in verse 25... Of Luke chapter 10, it says, and behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. The lawyer, he's not a lawyer who practices law within the court system. He is a Pharisee who essentially is a scholar of the word. And he does normally, or naturally, I should say, what most Pharisees did to Jesus. And that is he tested Jesus. He, they tried to trip up Christ, tried to see if they could... Um, Get the crowds of people to turn against Jesus because, again, Jesus was, well, he was somewhat of a controversial figure, right? And they were at this point irritated with Christ, even to the point where they wanted to take his life. And so they knew if they took Jesus's life that ultimately they would start a huge revolt. So that would not be counterproductive. And So the best or the second thing that they felt that they could re- result, or resolve to is to try to test him and see if he fails. And so here's the teacher, uh, scholar in the law. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This was a kind of a normal question that these Pharisees and Sadducees would ask Jesus. What do I need to do to uh, inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Jesus, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he said, this lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going to Jerusalem, to Jericho. And he fell among some robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed right by to the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he sat him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out a denary and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? To the man who fell amongst robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for Jesus. Even the controversial parts, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the testimony and the parables and the work of Christ and scripture, Lord, that we see. And Lord, I thank you for this parable, the good Samaritan. I ask, Lord, that you would connect our hearts and help us see this parable through the lens in which Jesus desires us to see it through. Father, help us and cause your Holy Spirit to rest upon my mouth to only speak that which you are speaking. In Jesus' name, amen. To understand the context here of this parable, we need to kind of find out the relationship that existed at the time between Jew and Samaritan. Um, If if you are familiar uh, with that relationship, you would understand that, or you would see that most Jews considered Samaritans to be somewhat of an underclass, right? Like they were just not as good, right, as Jewish people. And it's funny that Jesus was... When uh, the Pharisees had said that he was filled with a demonic spirit, they had called him a Samaritan. Of course, Jesus wasn't a Samaritan, but that was like an insult. If, If you really wanted to get under the skin of another Jewish person that was aggravating you, all you would have to do is call him a Samaritan. It was that degrading. They were considered as like... The, the, the blight on you know kind of like the cultural scene in Jerusalem. And so, you know, they were treated rather hostile, even. And, and, and the Jewish people, I think, being that they were are considered themselves to be the children of God, had kind of like this prideful, arrogant aura about them. And 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 ultimately um, they really despised. Samaritans actually, for Jesus to actually prop up the Samaritan as the hero in this parable would have been completely insulting to a predominant Jewish crowd, our audience. To, um, say that a priest walked right by his own fellow man, another Jew, just ignoring this man who is bleeding and dying and has uh, been robbed is an indictment against the church. And And then Jesus goes a little bit further and he brings a Levite into the picture. I mean, he is throwing some insults himself against the Jewish culture. And essentially, Jesus is saying not just that you are to love your neighbor, but you are to love your enemy because that's how the Jewish people saw the Samaritans. They, they saw these Samaritans as, well, their enemies. And so today in my sermon, we're actually gonna turn real quick to Matthew chapter five. I want us to listen to this sermon today, if we could, uh, through the lens or through the, earphones, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but through the lens of this parable about the Good Samaritan. I want every word that I speak today for you as my audience to filter these things through this parable Parable, excuse me. knowing the things that we just discussed. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, 43 through 48. Is anybody opposed to reading a lot of Scripture today? No? Good, that's great. Because we're going to cover a lot of ground. Here's Matthew chapter 5, 43 through 48. He says this, Jesus, you have heard it said that you shall shall love your neighbor, excuse me, and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What a radical concept here. Jesus moves the bar a little bit further along the road and says, Hey, listen, it's not, a, it's not just enough, excuse me, that you love your neighbors. You have to love your enemies as well. And you have to love them in the same way in which you love your neighbors. Now, I don't know about you right out the door. That's a bit controversial. I can hardly love my son the way he should be loved. I can hardly love my wife the way Christ loves the church. But now Jesus ups the ante and says, I got to do this with my enemy." This is bizarre. This is such a radical um, concept. And it's a departure from what was. You see, it was never written in the Old Testament that you should hate your enemy. Right? I mean, the Old Testament doesn't endorse hatred. Jesus is speaking now to the heart of those who are listening. That in, in a similar fashion that if you're to have anger in your heart towards a brother, it's like committing murder. Or if you look at a woman with lust in your heart it's as if you were committing the act of adultery, this is what Jesus is confronting. He's confronting the heart. The Old Testament does not endorse hate, but yet hate was prevalent amongst the Jewish culture. Hatred towards the Samaritan. And Jesus goes right into that hate and says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. Friends, this still remains for us today. Uh, Countercultural, doesn't it? Very controversial. Again, as I said, I can barely love my, my, my family and those who are close to me in the way that they should be loved. Now Jesus invites me, us, his body, to love our enemies in the same heart, in the same manner. This is unbelievable. But only Christian love, only love with Jesus as the driving force behind it can cause a man like or a woman like you and me to, to have or be empowered with, I should say, forgiveness in love towards our enemy. You take, for example, Corey Ten Boone, who had lost a majority of her family in Nazi concentration camps. She, years later, traveled the globe and she preached on the forgiveness and the grace of God. One day, a man walked into one of those lectures... Who was a guard at one of these concentration camps. And that love filled Corey's heart. That message of grace, that message of love your enemies, filled her heart so much to the fact where she could embrace this man, hug him, and spend a little time with him. Only Christian love can do this. God gave Corey the opportunity to do that. You gotta imagine that this. Guy represented all that was bad in that era. Corey saw Jews exterminated. Her own family killed because they were protecting Jews from extermination. But yet she was given the opportunity now in a lecture to extend by, I believe, the power and grace of God to extend love for her oppressor. I believe God's still in the business of doing that. My point is this, friends, it is not easy to love our enemies. It's it's one thing to love those who are like us, right? That's easy. You know, it's, um, it's, it's not hard to love those in whom we get along with and we enjoy being around. But Jesus says there's no real reward in that. That's what he says. Even the Gentiles can do this. You know, again, speaking towards a people group in which Jews would have hated at that time. Even the Gentiles could love somebody who's easy to love. But Jesus says there's no reward in that, right? And so essentially there's no reward in doing what comes easy. Let me say that again unless you're not listening. There's no reward in this case of doing what's easy. It is only the hard and narrow road that we walk. Because none of us, none of us, do a good job at loving our enemies, let alone those whom we adore and cherish. So the reward comes when we do the unthinkable. The reward comes when we do the uncommon. The reward comes when we go against the grain of what comes naturally to us when somebody has wronged us. Come on. Can I just speak? Oh, I mean, what is your reaction When you find out sister so-and-so is talking bad about you in the bathroom after church. What's your reaction? Oh, I know, I know. You got thick skin, right? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Oh, to be a fly on the wall in your bedroom. What is your reaction? I'm telling you, pay attention to those reactions. They say a lot about your heart. So the reward comes when we go against the grain when we go countercultural or, you know, in an unnatural path when somebody has wronged us. But in order to do this, friends, we have to know. We have to know what love is. We have to know what biblical love is. And I want to stress that because, listen, I mean, the world does a great job, right, of trying to define, let's just take, for example, love. And and ultimately, when we find that definition that the world paints for us of love, we're often let down. And, And yet, we're let down, but we find out that the Bible's definition of love is completely different. Completely different. And I want to stress this. I want to encourage you to look towards the Scripture to define things like love and other things that are, that are hard to grapple with and that the world seeks to paint their own or give their own definition. I want to encourage you, look at the Bible. Listen, if you've ever been to a wedding, which I think we're going to be at one soon. Uh, Bennett, and Serene, yeah, yeah, you like that? I didn't, that's just, that just, that's free. Um, Thank you. i got to slow down. This is always tricky. Thank you, translators. Thank you. Thank you. If you've ever been to a wedding, though, you've probably heard 1 Corinthians 13 cited. Let's turn there. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Is this okay? Everybody all right? All right. Um, Are you happy? Tell your face that. Tell your face. Say face. I'm happy. Put a smile on. It's okay. It's church. We're not at a a funeral. We're, We're at church. It's like a party. It's like a party. That's what it is. You're like, but you're mad. No, I'm not mad. I'm just excited, guys. I just yell. I'm sorry. It's, uh, my dad did it. His father did it. It's kind of just, you know, kind of inherited it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 4, Paul the apostle says this, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, they will pass away. These passages are beautiful, right, when it comes to wedding ceremonies. They really are. But I don't know if the Apostle Paul had marital love in mind when he wrote this. And I'm just taking a guess. It's probably not what was... First thing that came to his mind. Although I'm not against it, I think it's beautiful. But I, I, you know, I think it needs to go a little bit deeper than that. You know, for example, um, the King James version of the word "love," the English word "love," encompasses a wide variety of feelings. Really, um, love could be that warm, fuzzy feeling you get, or that sexual desire that you have towards someone you admire. Um, that can make it hard, really, to distinguish if you think about it between uh, uh, like. You know, the definition of, the, of worldly love and biblical uh, love or the meaning of biblical love. Therefore, uh, making those distinctions hard when it comes to, like, loving your favorite food, um, you know, uh, loving your favorite household pet to now loving God. I mean, it's, you know, some, some, there's just no comparison, right? But Paul's definition and the word that he uses is the same word that Jesus uses when he talks to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? It's agape love, and in this um, context, it means putting the needs of others before your own. Now we have just raised the water table here. Paul essentially says, "Listen, the definition of love is that you would prefer—excuse prefer, me—the needs of others above your own." And this, my friends, is what makes biblical love controversial. This is what it, what makes it countercultural. Because at its core, Christian love is sacrificial. At, at its core, Christian love is costly. But nobody wants to hear that. This is why Jesus said, consider the cost. Consider before a man goes to war, right? He meets with his advisors and thinks and plans and plots if he can actually defeat that oncoming army. If he's to build a house, he wants to make sure he has enough money, not just to start it, but to finish it. And yes, friends, the same applies to Christian love. It is costly. It is more than a four-letter word. why Jesus can say in John 15, verses 12 and 13, "This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you." And he doesn't just stop there. He says this, "Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends." Now he uses the word friends, but yet in Matthew chapter five, he ups the water table and says, "Also for your enemies." Who is my neighbor? Who are my friends? Jesus says, everyone. Everyone. Hmm. It's one more scripture okay to read? Okay. Are you guys getting bored? Okay. I hope not. It's, I mean, it's too bad if you are. I'm, I'm going to be up here for at least another 15 minutes at least. Uh, <laughs> Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, here is Christ again. He says this, you have heard uh, that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist the one who is evil. Wow. Let's let that sink in for a little bit. Do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you in the right cheek, turn to him and give him the other also. And if anyone who would uh, would sue you and take your tunic, let him have also your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who wants to borrow from you. Christian love it sees the needs of others and sacrificially places those needs above their own no matter what the cost this is what it means to love like christ we have a perfect example in jesus don't we we have a perfect example in jesus that he himself he didn't just give his life for his friends he gave according to paul his life for his enemies you and I, me and you, we were his enemies, right? That's what the Bible teaches. And, and, and Christ just doesn't go to the cross for those who are his disciples and those who are following him at the time. He goes to the cross for his enemies. He, he goes to the cross for his enemies that they might follow him too. That they might become his so disciples, excuse me. Whew. Guys, this Is edgy stuff. It is. It is. It is on the edge. I mean, I've had such a shallow definition of love, and I've I've, I've, this week in studying, I've come. Oh, I've come face to face with the God who is love, (laughs) and I think it would be best that we all have that moment, that we all have that face-to-face interaction where our, our love for others becomes deep and sincere. And, and, and it goes beyond those in whom we enjoy, those in whom we love already, but it goes right to those who curse us, persecute us, and speak all matter of evil against us. Oh, I love, that. I love the golf clap. Uh, thank you. You're my one fan. I appreciate you. I love you so much. <laughs> Guys, it's okay to clap. It's actually encouraging to me, okay? I need all the encouragement I can get. I, yeah, there you go. Wow. <laughs> so Jesus spells this out clearly in the Scripture. Christian love is backed with a guaranteed, really. It's, it's backed... Uh, with the guarantee of sacrificial actions. That's what Matthew chapter 5, uh, we just read, um, 38 said. Everything that Jesus mentioned in that text was calling his disciples to action, right? I mean, if, if, if someone slaps you on one side of the face, the action is, turn the other, I'm not suggesting that, but, you know, that's what Jesus said. Uh, if, if someone sues you for your tunic, I don't even know what that is. Don't really care. I'll, I'll give them the shirt off my back, too. Uh, well, as long as there's another shirt underneath it, that would be scary. Um, but you get the point. If somebody asks you to go a mile, I'll walk with them, too. Everything that Jesus mentions within that text is calling the church to action. It's not just throwing out... Uh, be blessed, brother. I, I love you. You're just, I, you're just, you're, I love you. Be blessed. No. It's, 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 it's doing something. Love looks like something. It, it, it has action. It has purpose and meaning. And, 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 it, and it, it drives us almost to stay, uh, you know, to keep us from being indifferent and, and complacent when we see somebody who's in need. Or if we see somebody who's attacking us. It's not just a four-letter word. It's, it's, I'll go that extra mile. And this is what's countercultural. I mean, I imagine that some of you are sitting in your seat like, what is he talking about? Like, how is? where is the justice in this? Isn't that just like human nature? Where's the justice? Do we not know that justice is God's? He will vindicate. He will will answer and bring justice where there has been injustice. That is not our job. That is not what the Scripture teaches. We are not God. What God has given us to do is to love, is to forgive, is to be um, graceful towards our enemies, not seek for their justice. For justice to be served. Whenever we do this, we lose the thrill of loving those who hate us. There is a thrill in that. Oh man, I mean, I don't want. I'll use myself as an example, just because of you know, I just have, um, I guess, the fortune of having to take a lot of arrows and a lot of insults and in people's frustrations, just because I'm the pastor and. I'm telling you, there's something that happens in my heart when I choose not to resent, when I choose not to be angry, but to uh, extend love and grace towards a situation. There's a certain kind of thrill that fills me and excites me. And whenever you forego um, living out purposeful Christian love, you're foregoing a living without that thrill of forgiving your enemies. I want to grow. In loving our our love for my enemies. So this begs the question briefly. um, What's the real risk, right? I mean, you know, we just got um, my family... We got health insurance. Well, we just we have had health insurance. We got like a retirement plan going. All these certain things, and and of course, I have people coming over and like taking my blood and making sure that I'm not like this, you know, cancer ridden, like cholesterol, you know, like off the charts. Like, like, we're going to cover this guy, you know. They know they want to make sure that there's not a lot of risk. But uh, whenever we uh, think about loving our enemies, of course, if you're normal, if you're a human being breathing air, you probably have thought, like, well, there's a lot of risk in that, right? There's there's a lot uh, of of things that I'm afraid of losing. So um, growing up with five siblings, um, I was the youngest for, I think, about, I don't know, seven or eight years. And I don't know if you've experienced this, you who have grown up in uh, larger-sized families, but um, being the youngest, I used to take, like, the brunt of like everything. Um, so, for example, if let's say um, we used to, anybody do chores when you were growing up? And your parents ever have like, you know, like, okay, like, it's your job to do this, it's your job to do that. Um, well, we had chores growing up. And um, I remember going back into my um, younger self, uh, there was a Tuesday where I was supposed to wash the dishes and my brother Phil he did this um, normally on a constant basis I don't know why I didn't smarten up and see the tactic but um, he came up to me and said hey Daryl it's like you know I I really want to wash the dishes that should have been a red flag right there um, I really want to wish, wash the dishes you might take out the dogs for me I'm like hey like I don't want to wash the dishes like I'm fine with that so I, yeah I walked I walked the dog so throughout the day after I walked the dog I came in and realized that the dishes weren't washed Looked at my watch and said, oh, mom and dad are going to be home soon. I wonder if Phil's going to do those dishes. Lo and behold, Phil never did the dishes. Mom and dad came home and said, why aren't the dishes done? My brother Phil said, Daryl didn't do them. Oh. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, what? Yeah. And of course, my older brother you know, affirmed, yep, yep, no, it was Daryl's job. He didn't do them. My older sister, yeah, it's you know, just throw Johnny under the bus, pretty much. <laughs> So I went down, right, and there was a part of me that resented my siblings for this, right? I mean, naturally, I, I, I wanted justice. I, 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 and even when it was funny, even when my name was cleared, I still wanted justice. I want they gotta pay for this. Have you have you ever been there when it comes to your enemy? Like the biggest fear you have is like, I don't want to let them off the hook. Come on, talk to me. Like, the real fear is like, if I forgive them, they're going to get away with something. And this isn't Christianity at all. This isn't what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that no man will get off the hook for their wrongdoing, for the injustice that they commit. The Bible teaches us that vengeance is the Lord, That may be some strong language, but you're going to have to take it up with the big man upstairs. I didn't write it. I'm just saying it. I like what John Piper says in an article he wrote on the vengeance of God. He said this, all sins will be punished either on the cross. Listen to me, because this is very important. All sins will be punished either on the cross for those who repent, and you can't, improve upon that right there. We can't. Like, so like our little pettiness of wanting you know, our siblings or whoever, that person who cut us off the road or gave us the finger, told us we were number one. Like, like judgment belongs, vengeance belongs to God and you can't improve upon that. And so Piper says sins will be punished either on the cross for those who repent, you can't improve upon that or in hell. Oh, my goodness. For those who do not repent, and my friends, you can't improve upon that, we need to lay aside our pettiness. Our our job, our MO, like what we're called to do as believers is not uh, uh, seek out vengeance. It's not to make sure we we get justice. It's to make sure we love And it's to make sure that we go the distance in love rather than hardening our hearts and saying, no, 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 you're going to pay for what you do. No, no, no. That's not biblical love. That's not Christian love. God will have the final say. Let him because he will do a far better job in it than you will ever do. And matter of fact, when it comes to the cross, the ground is level. The same things you need forgiveness for is the same things most likely your enemies need forgiveness for. And God knows, because God sees all, knows all. So we give it to Him. We trust that He will have His day of reckoning. And friends, I'm happy with that. Justice belongs to the Lord. We need to stop playing God. Let God be God. And do what Jesus taught us to do. And that is love sacrificially through costly actions like Christ loved us. Bow your heads and pray. Father, I've done my best. And now I trust you to do the rest, Lord. I trust you to do the work in our hearts that's needed to be done. But, Father, I do ask, Lord, that your eyes would search our hearts, Lord, here today. Lord, you would take stock and inventory of where we are, God, as a church. Where we are in this quest of love, Lord, not just a love for one another, but a love even that goes... um, Beyond our love for one another, right to a love for our enemies. Jesus, we want to love our enemies. So Jesus, move amongst us. Move in our hearts, Lord. If there's anybody here this morning that falls short, they know it in their heart, God. Lord, this week in reading these passages, I knew I lacked something that I needed, Father. I pray, Lord, that if anybody feels like they lack, Lord, they would not be feel condemned, but they would feel at... Um, at liberty to ask, say, God, show me, give me your love. I thank you, Lord, that this, this love can't be taught. It can only be caught. It can only, it's contagious. It's something that happens uh, uh, progressively as our eyes are open to the glories and the beauties of Jesus. Father, I want to love my enemies. I want to be part of a church that loves their enemies, God. I don't want to always be throwing stones, God, at sinners, throwing stones at issues and injustice, God. I just want to hear the words of Christ when He says, love your enemies. I want to love my enemies, Jesus. That's what I want to do. I don't have a need, God, for justice. I only have a need to be like Christ. That is our need, God. So when somebody has wronged us, when somebody has said something that's hurt us, God, when somebody has done something that brought pain and misunderstanding, God, I I pray that our reaction is, how can I be like Christ in this situation? How can I be like Jesus and love them well? Give me, give us opportunities, Jesus. Many, 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 many opportunities to grow in this love. Even in this community, Jesus. I pray right now, God, as even there are probably some enemies in this congregation. Oh, be it far from us, God. That we would allow Satan to deceive us. Forgive us, God. Bind us together. God. Bind us together with cords that cannot easily be broken when the enemy comes in to sow his seeds of division, God. Oh, God. Do a work, Jesus, in us, through us, and around us in this church in Jesus' name. You know, I gotta be honest, you can